Love How's this it. lighting situation? Better? It don't look like a freaking criminal with the eyes. <laughs> Dude, every time it's different. My, I love the fact that my, I make fun of everyone for their face getting red, but as a bald guy, you can see it even more. I look like, I mean, I was out in the sun a little bit today, but not for very long. We, just, <laughs> we did a few sprints outside today. <laughs> Good. Better not hear about that knee later. No, 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 not uh, me. I was coaching them. Now, I'm right. not ready to run yet. I'm not ready to run. I'm taking my time. I'm listening to my physical therapist. He's very good, by the way, folks. He's very good. <laughs> we have him on tonight. Uh, I'll do my little introduction here, and then we'll, uh, we'll get cruising along. Uh, welcome to the Coach Haas Podcast, um, sponsored by Sports Rehab PA. I think we're all pretty much yeah. geared up. I'm rocking it today. Yeah, it's, it's working. And um, I have my sidekick. I, sh- I can't call my sidekick. He's he's knows way more than I do, so he's not the sidekick. He's uh, Dr. Mike St. George. And um, how you doing there, Mike? Good, man. How's it going? Doing well. Doing well. We got a guest tonight, Mike. Yeah, let's introduce the guest. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a student at Temple, and I'll let him kind of tell you a little bit more about himself um he's been coming into the gym we've we've talked often um about some of the injuries and obviously the acls and what i'm doing with the kids here and um he posed a couple questions and we i was like dude let's get you on the podcast tonight he's like all right bet so here we are ryan let's hear you perfect yeah just uh thank you guys in advance for having me on i actually really appreciate it um, yeah, as Joe had mentioned, I'm a student at Temple currently. I'm a third year uh, physical therapy student. I, um, I have a background in kinesiology. I graduated from uh, Temple in 2018 and I uh, started um, my uh, PT degree that summer in the, uh, June. And so I've been going strong ever since. Um, I played sports when I was younger. Um, so I've always had an interest and a passion for them. Um, and you, you know, combine that with an interest of mine in, in the, uh, rehabilitative field and, and it kind of has created a uh, an avenue uh, for me to pursue in terms of a in terms of a profession I guess some relationship in sports rehab and that's kind of how I got able to uh was able to segue into um you know working with you a little bit seeing what you were doing and you know I, I actually really enjoyed my time that I got the chance to to work with you and that kind of segued the relationship that we yeah last summer you came in and shadowed me for a little bit that was yep Yep, exactly. And um, created kind of the relationship that we have together. So, you know, it's, uh, I guess, kind of built up from there. But as you mentioned, yeah, just a student currently. Michael, the young lad here has uh, proposed some questions that I thought, A, I would love to hear Michael's end of it because a lot of it has to do with the ankle and running. And Michael's our expert over here with with that. Um, Did you run cross country track? What did you do? Yeah, so I actually was a state-level runner from New Jersey. Um, started, I had to play soccer growing up, like soccer. I played, like, all, you know, street sports and stuff. Never really got into, like, the ice hockey or any, like, the snow sports. None of my friends anyone around. I mean, I grew up in central Jersey, so, um, you know, those sports weren't as popular. So we did a lot of street stuff. So it was, like, soccer, street hockey, like, roller hockey, um, you know, just backyard football, basketball. Did a little bit of everything. Gravitated mostly to soccer, um, and then just judging by the, the speed I had, I kind of went into track, and I started training for that. So I started going to the track with my father, and he had me just running, just getting endurance up, 
and I was able to just find out I was able to run. So like eighth grade, I was able to hit a 520 mile. And so I was able to be the top miler there. Wow. And then going in freshman year, I was able to hit like four in the four forties. So then as the career went from there from just running. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but it's funny because I look back now and there was no rhyme or reason to uh, any type of training that we did to facilitate running. And it's like, if I would have known the stuff I know now, I know I definitely could have enhanced what I did as well as our team. You know, the coach did kind of coach you through that a little bit better. I mean, I'm sure the track coaches then yeah. were just like, just run, just run. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was good with the programming and understanding about the running and the volume, but there was no talk about, um, you know, strength and conditioning to get better. You know, I did three seasons. I did cross country, indoor, and spring. And you thought that's what you had to do. Yep. And, you know, it was more than just about getting varsity letters and all that. You thought that indoor track was kind of keep you conditioned for, for spring, but probably would have been more beneficial to spend that winter in the weight room and, you know, just cutting back a little bit on mileage. Because we did a preseason anyway before. I mean, we would go out springtime. We would start, like, at the tail end of March, windy. We start hitting 10 mile runs and then the worst workout, even to this day, it's horrible. We would do like 16 quarters. So 400 meter runs, 65 or below was your target, 60 second rest. And you kept going to the point where the lines were looking like they were colors, you know, and that's what we did, you know, and it's like, I look at the runners, I look at the kids now and I'm just like, you know, we did that, the consistent training of the same thing over and over again. And there was no implementation of like stability stuff. And it's like, man, like, who knows if I could have gotten myself a little faster. I never had any injuries, thankfully. But what was funny was my coach did always yell at us, get on the balls of your feet. And he was hoping that we would kind of pick up on that because he didn't have the credentials or the ability to train us with that midfoot strike because, God forbid, started getting some injuries, the Achilles and stuff that happens. But I don't think he was really – had the knowledge or the background to deal with that. Right. Hope that maybe we'd naturally get it. And I never – did that I just ran and it's like if I could have gotten in that form who knows where it could have been so just interesting when you, you look back at it you know yeah. yeah um Ryan had an interesting um question about this so Ryan I want to let you fire away at the doctor here sure. listen in and I'll kind of see if I can get some questions from it but go ahead yeah sure so um the background of this this whole thing is where this question kind of came about was I uh, this year? Was, I was able to attend uh, the combined sections meeting, which Mike is. I'm um, sure you're familiar, but for those that aren't, it's a, essentially just a large conference that a bunch of uh, physical therapists and students, you know, like go to, and they pretty much just present on what's you know current in research topics that are relevant in treatment styles, you know, from there. Um, but there was one that I had the uh, pleasure to attend that was given on running, jumping, and cutting, and the relationship that that had with a uh, lower extremity injury, and one main point that kind of came from that presentation and started to create this idea in my head was uh, the idea of if you sacrifice mobility for stability at a joint um, that's supposed to be mobile, right? So if we can we can think of like especially in the uh, lower extremity, the hip or the ankle, um, that could in theory create an alteration in biomechanical output at the knee, um, which you know inherently causes a joint that's not supposed to be um, you know too mobile. To actually become so, um, and so you know, just kind of go over what that what they had you know illustrated from there. If they're speaking, you know, between the hip and the ankle, you can look at the ankle first specifically. Um, a decrease in dorsiflexion means you won't flex the knee as much. 
which creates a kind of uh, negative cascade, if you will, up the kinetic chain, where you're going to move further into hip adduction and then to compensate uh, your hip adductors fire, which moves you um, into an increased position of the you know dynamic knee valgus, which I don't know if you guys have kind of you know alluded to before, but it's a faulty you know pattern that creates excessive stress in some of the soft tissue at your knee. Um, the same thought process would would follow for the hip, right? If you fall, if you know, if you fall into excessive hip adduction and internal rotation, so your um, your your legs essentially coming in, um, that creates the same faulty pattern at the knee, um, you know, and you get this you know period of dynamic knee valgus, which again just illustrates the fact that um, proximal or distal, um, I guess you know, issues create um, symptoms at the knee. So the knee might not actually be the culprit; it could be from um, you know, a, a location elsewhere. And I, you know, I thought that was pretty interesting. It was the first indication that I've really received that you really need to focus biomechanically on the entire kinetic chain in terms of its influence at each respective segment. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Stefania Bell. She's the, the woman that's on fantasy football now on Sundays with Matthew Barry. Um, she's actually a really, really good physical therapist. And she was one of the presenters. And um, I guess in true ESPN fashion, she started talking about to kind of wrap up this entire presentation about Zion Williamson, because I'm sure as you guys remember, he did just, you know, come off of rehabbing a knee injury. And at the time he was actually still injured uh, when the presentation was be being given. And she was going through like a, an actual biomechanical analysis, you know, in video while he was playing and she was breaking down, you know, his, his motion at deferring segments during the video. Um, and it dawned on me at first, as a former basketball player, I'm aware that in terms of footwear, the point of basketball sneakers inherently is to reduce range of motion at the ankle so you increase stability, right? Because lateral ankle sprains, functional ankle instability are an issue in basketball. It's just, it's just you know, not too much of a surprise. It requires a high degree of cutting. It's repetitive jumping, which is going to, at times, induce extra stress in your ankle. So the point would be to create, you know, extra stability there. But is that actually creating kind of a paradox is where my first question was led to. Are you creating stability at the ankle and then losing that stability at the knee, which, you know, in, in its inherent function is actually supposed to remain stabilized, creating more mobility, you know, albeit faulty, and now accruing, you know, extra stress on the knee joint itself. And so I kind of sat on that question for a long time. Um, and, and, I, and I was actually thinking about writing a little bit about it recently, but I, I didn't get the chance to, I guess, the last few months. Um, but I recently came across an article that's the first indicator that might actually answer the question a little bit. And the article itself talks about the relationship between um, knee biomechanical output and the use of ankle, pro ankle prophylactics, and that would include bracing, taping, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, like I said, it's actually the first thing that I've seen that would directly indicate a study that looks at if you're restricting joint motion at the ankle, the way that it would influence the knee. Um, and so, if, you know, if you guys wouldn't mind, I can give you the quick, like, spark notes kind of synopsis from the article. Um, and I, I guess the primary, like, quick hitting points um, and I, I guess I can give a shameless plug to my Twitter page I was telling you about earlier, Joe. It's um, 
Here we go. Right. Plug, throw a plug. Look at the mic. Sure. Plugs. I, uh, it's actually at uh, PT underscore tags is my Twitter, and I kind of use it just to put out interesting information I'd find. And this was one of the ones that I, that I did, and it, like I said, it kind of springboarded this entire idea here. Um, and just to, just to, like I said, just give some quick hitting points. It's, you know, spoke about ankle prophylactics, in particular braces, um, and their primary goal would be to redu reduce joint inversion or eversion, which is moving your ankle in and out. Um, and th th they quite literally accomplished it. So what, you know, one of the things that I mentioned is that uh, you actually can decrease inversion in particular about five to eight degrees during single leg cutting, which is primarily what they analyzed. And that's, you know, that actually can decrease or reduce ankle sprains by upwards of 70% which I think that the three of us could, you know, as, as we you know, talk about this, could agree that's, that's inherently a positive, right? Sure. Um, the problem with especially braces in particular is that they have been found to inhibit or alter ankle dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, which as, you know, I kind of alluded to throughout that, that little, you know, quick synopsis of the presentation at CSM, that alters kinetic chain output uh, much, like I said, much to what I explained earlier. Um, and if that is the case, right? So if you decrease ankle plantar flexion or dorsiflexion, now you're increasing knee abduction. And so another quick note, if you increase knee abdu abduction, um, you know, by values as low as two degrees, actually, um, that tends to, you know, incur an, or increase, um, knee soft tissue injury, which of course the ACL, ACL will be included in, um, right. you know, substantially from there. Um, and so, Understanding this, like I said, the primary goal of the study was to analyze what these braces would do on entire kinetic chain output. Um, they found that in in particular, in those that were wearing a restrictive ankle brace, um, they actually increased peak knee abduction anywhere from about three to five degrees, um, which again provides kind of a legitimate source of information to what I had mentioned earlier. Um, for, for people that might hear that, you could go ahead and you could say, well, you're cherry picking information, which I guess is to an extent is correct. Um, and, and if you were to look at it, they actually didn't find any differences between uh, the male population, but the female did. So the, the male population, okay. there wasn't much of a difference in terms of the way that it would impact the knee. But again, in the female population, it did increase uh, the risk of injury. I think that we can all agree to that in that population, they're naturally a bit more at risk. I'm sure as you work with any of your athletes, you notice that as they kind of, you know, perform about 80% female, probably 85% female. Yeah. That I yeah, yep. exactly. And you'll, you'll probably find that a lot of them have a tendency to collapse into this position regardless. Right. So maybe your first thought process would be a potential indicator for the difference in sexes would be, well, females are naturally occurring in that position regardless. So potentially for some of those that they were found that they found to increase that, you know, peak knee abduction force or right. moment, I guess, maybe it could be a result of just the, the natural, I guess, you know, faulty movement pattern that is, you know, typical to be seen amongst the female population regardless. But where I would be hesitant to agree with that is something else that they had mentioned um, where they talked about the different groups that they had measured. So there, there were four primary groups. There was the restrictive ankle bracing group. There was the taping group. There was uh, a control group, so people that didn't receive any sort of intervention at their ankle. And there was also uh, what they called a novel ankle prophylactic group wearing what they call the ankle row guard. Now, I can tell you genuinely that last night was the first time as I was reading this that I'd actually had the, the opportunity to be exposed to what this is. Um, and so I guess I'll get to that in a second. But if you look at these four groups, 
amongst the females, you know, specifically, those that were wearing the, um, the restrictive ankle braces, they still did prove to show that they increased, they decreased ankle range of motion, which is again, the goal, but they did increase this faulty, you know, movement pattern at the knee. However, in these novel ankle prophylactics, this, uh, you know, ankle roll guard group, for both, it was found for males and for females. The way that it's kind of uh, illustrate, the way I could illustrate this for, for you to understand, the way that's wrapped around is it's not in the same kind of like you know, I guess orientation that's wrapped around your ankle that you would you know picture a typical ankle brace, but it actually kind of wraps around your shoe, and its primary purpose is to prevent excessive inversion. And they did find by measuring you know range of motion at the ankle during the task. It did prevent inversion, but you don't lose that mobility in terms of plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, which we've now kind of established originally, does create a bit of a faulty movement pattern at the yeah, knee. Right. So by creating freedom in plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, specifically in, these, in this ARG group, they, you know, and I say they as in both sexes, all groups included, didn't actually show any of these faulty knee biomechanical output patterns that were found in, um, you know, the group that... Uh, that had the restrictive ankle brace, you know, more specifically with females. So, you know, I'm curious to hear your opinions on it. Mike, what, but, do, what do you do with, what do you do with brace? What do, what's your take on bracing and taping? And So I would only use um, <clears throat> bracing or taping if you're trying to do a couple things. So if you're trying to, first of all, you want to protect a certain movement because something is healing. So um, if you listen to what, some of the people who work with um, high-end athletes, pro level, or even in college, and they have to participate in game times. So you can even look at, take an NFL lineman, for instance. You know, they could wrap that ankle and allow to protect it in a range that they could function without compromising what is trying to heal. Also, they wrap it to basically um, stabilize that joint. So. You know, if you're having a deficiency, maybe there's a motor control issue or something's going on, you brace that ankle to kind of act as a support. So you're going to help take load off of that joint while things are healing. So this way they're able to play, but they're using that. So maybe you're, you're taping them and it's taking like 50% load off the joint because the tape is doing the work instead of the muscle. So until they get better, the tape acts there. Um, and they can still play, but yeah, you're going to compromise some of the mobility, but it still allows them to do certain things. Um, right. Even if you want them to have like limited play, um, you know, everyone always usually comes in and asks about the braces and all that type of stuff. Um, I mean, genetically, the human body is obviously meant to perform, you know, without having all these type of aids. You know, if you look at the history of the shoe, you could go and you could read so an article that like Irene Davis broke down in um, JOSPT, which shows about the history of the shoe and really where we kind of got big. And you can even listen to uh, Chris McDougall talk on a podcast as well, where he talks about the shoes. Obviously, he doesn't like Nike, but you know he talks about um, the evolution of that shoe. And basically, it came to the point where we started putting these big mattresses under our feet and supporting, supporting, supporting. And you don't, you know, what is this really doing here? You know, I mean, I was even did that in high school. You know, I ran in bulky shoes and it made no sense because then you ran in track spikes. Right. Why would you train with a mattress under your foot and then go and compete in spikes? And it always felt better to me to be in those spikes. I felt faster, lighter, more in tune with the ground. You know, there's a drill that um, 
one of the uh, Spartan coaches that I train under does. His name is Yancey Colt. Joe's a little familiar with his name now. He does a great drill. He puts people barefoot or in the socks, puts them on a pavement, and tells them to run. They will naturally not strike their heel because if you do, you're going to jack yourself up. So you are naturally going to midfoot strike. So he does that to kind of get the point across. Now, that's not a good way to train. What he actually advises is to go onto like a soft surface, like a field on the soft grass, and go and run barefoot and feel the ground and get those muscles working. Not that, yeah. So, Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, a big thing that Joe and I are seeing in all these soccer players is their feet are just destroyed. They're like these clubbed blocks that just don't move. They're in these horrible, you know, cleats. You know, they're on basically a platform with little nubs on the bottom, and they play in that, and they come home after the game. You know these kids are not stretching, they're not foam rolling, not even putting a cross ball under their foot and rolling it out because they don't know any better. It's just soccer, 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 soccer. And then I go home and take my shoes off. I go right over to one of my little balls, and I just roll the bottom of my foot because it's yeah. been in a sneaker all day. And I try to go much more barefoot or in a sock at home than I used to. I used to walk around in sneakers all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a lot more shoe brands coming out now that – have more of a minimal style, but there are some that have a little bit more of a cushion, but they're still minimal in regards because some people just can't, you know, their foot genetically, whatever, maybe they have a little bit more of a rigid foot and they can't get away with as much as the support. Or some people even have like flatter feet and they're really good as long as they have good muscular control. So I know it's like a big inclination that when some of these physicians too see it's just brace, brace, brace. And that's not always the case that needs to be done. The shoe is really the last thing that I'll change with somebody. I will improve the biomechanics and improve all the motor control first and then see how they do. Then we'll look at the shoe because if they're doing what they're doing. And, and you, like I train all my athletes, I mean, people barefoot or it's socks in the clinic. Yep. And you see it's the difference because some of them come in in these bulky shoes and they feel like they're balanced. They're using the support of that shoe. Right. Then you take them out and all of a sudden their foot's all over the place, you know. So there's a big difference there. So I always improve the motor control first, and then we go and look at the shoe, and then we talk about, you know, what type of shoe we're going to look at, because that's kind of a transition, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that absolutely makes sense. Um, and, and you know, kind of sharing a similar, I guess, experiences. I, I, I just always kind of wondered um, – because it feels like the more often that I would go out and, you know, you'd look for a pair of basketball sneakers to – the, um, especially Under Armour brands. That's not me trying to like you know, throw that particular brand on the bus or anything, but uh, you know, a particular athlete they they sponsor is Steph Curry, and he's had ankle injuries throughout his entire career. And so I've you know I've had a, a couple of pairs of Steph Currys in my you know that I've played in, and you can genuinely tell the difference that they make in terms of like the stability that they allow or that they increase, I guess, at your ankle. Like it it, it does make like a an, an absolute difference and. That, that, like I said, I kind of segued into the question is like, you know, if, if you're creating these sneakers that are just so, in, you know, I guess, established to, to increase stability, I, I'm just curious what that would do. And, and I'm, I feel like what might not be exactly transferable and the, and the brace kind of question itself doesn't, you know, particularly translate to footwear, the concept at least to me is a little bit similar. And so that's why I just thought it was a bit of an interesting kind of a well, we niche sort of topic. Yeah. And we talked about this this morning. If you start, you know, all of a sudden you went from a low ankle sprain and you started bracing that to now a high ankle sprain, and now you're going to, you know, go higher with a brace, now you're going to have knee issues, right? 
or it's the hip, or it's the next thing that's not braced. Yeah. But again, going back to my point, there's no motor control learning the patterns over again. Let's start there. If you need bracing for you know the beginning, okay, that's great. But the goal is to wean you off of that as soon as possible and get yeah. the motor control and all those things back in gear. Yeah. yeah. To me, uh, I never understood basketball shoes. I think they're stupid looking. I don't know <laughs> what the point is. But if there's one thing I've learned, yeah, there's one thing I've learned about sponsorships throughout this whole OCR experience and all that. It's companies will come out with a product and they want to push that to get it in front. So what do they do? They look at an athlete that's really good. It's a lot of popularity. That's how uh, Instagram blew up. And that's why everyone was so huge with followers. Now it doesn't even freaking matter anymore because Instagram changed their algorithm. Everybody wanted followers because if you have a lot of followers, then you got sponsors and all these sponsors would approach. It could be like a fruit bar brand or something, you know? But the thing is these companies would come out and they would look at athletes that were seen a lot and they'd want to get their product on them because they're seen a lot, even if the athlete didn't believe in the product. So these athletes get these products and sometimes they'll promote them and I find it funny where sometimes you see an athlete using a product and then it goes quiet and they're starting to use something else. It's that way of saying yeah. that I didn't really believe in it, you know? So same thing with pro athletes. You think those pro athletes, all of them drink Gatorade? I don't no. think so. If you're really taking care of yourself, you're not drinking Gatorade. You're, you have a personal trainer. You have a sports nutritionist. You have a lot. You think Tom Brady's drinking Gatorade? No, sorry. <laughs> so all these guys that have these private trainers that are really taking care of them behind the scenes – they're doing all that stuff, but hey, Gatorade wants to throw me money to wear a towel and walk around with a drink. I'm going to take it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's cool, you know, because they don't care because that product is just getting seen in front, you know? So to answer the Steph Curry thing, I mean, they're just going to throw these products there, number one. Number two, a big thing that I talked about with Joe, and this is one of the first conversations we had when we first met, is when you start getting on and you go to courses, like if you get a chance to go to like, uh, like a Kevin Wilk course, or you get a chance, I could even send you, Ryan, some of the podcasts where you listen to the guys that work, personal trainers for pro athletes, they'll tell you that a lot of these guys don't know what they're doing. Just because they are a physical specimen doesn't mean they have any understanding about the human body, about performance. You know, they need guys to keep them on the right track. So the really good athletes are going to reach out with their agent and find a personal trainer somewhere. Because in these systems, like you take the Eagles, for example, the Novacare system, I don't know how well, you know, the trainers and stuff are in there. I don't know. But I know that when I've listened to trainers talk, some of them will say, look, you know, sometimes trainers will make their way into a position because they knew somebody. So maybe, you know, I don't know, like uh, your neighbor knows somebody in the Novacare complex and you want to intern there. So then you start going and interning and then you build your way up. And before you know it, you have a job, you know, and then you just kind of work your way through. Uh, but then sometimes a lot of good trainers get their shot that way, but then a lot of good trainers don't get their shot, you know, because nobody knows they're around there, you know. So when you really talk to these guys that work with the pros, they're going to tell you that just because someone's working with the pros doesn't mean they're that good. And, and it's the ugly truth, you know. And I used to think that, oh, you work with the pros, you're invincible, you're all that. But it's not, it's not the case. A lot of these guys are not taking care of themselves the way they need to be. So somebody like Steph Curry getting repeated ankle sprains, what's going on there? Another example, Joel Embiid, guy is six foot what, 200 something pounds. I mean, he's like a luggering oaf in those big shoes. He has no control of his feet. It's no wonder he has stress fractures. Yep. And the Sixers organization wants to be like, well, you know, we're going to do a controlled loading phase and, you know, we're gonna, they're going to tease it along because they know the general population doesn't understand. 
it's inexcusable because you look behind the scenes, you're going to look at a guy like that and say, he should not be doing this amount of volume of playing basketball. Can he even stand on one leg? Let's look at that first. Right. So they should have taken him off, found those deficits, built them up, and then put him back. You know, I mean, you can see it all across the system. I mean, RG3 is the most viral example. Oh, look at that guy's oh. combine jump. All you got to do is Google RG3 jump with the Valgus. I mean, it's incredible. No wonder he had an ACL you know, uh, a tear. And then the one that took that long. Well, yeah. How no one picked up on that. No one looked at that. And then, you know, when he came back from the rehab, they got him back too early and against James Andrews advice and he tore it again. Yep. So these are things that again are unacceptable at that level, you know? Um, So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of speaking a little bit from the perspective of hearing these guys who work with the pros give examples of talkers. I mean, there's a lot of other examples, but Sometimes you have to look at that just because someone is at that top tier and they have all the spotlight doesn't mean that their path to getting there is always the healthiest and the best. You got to look a little bit, especially if they're always getting injured. That's a little bit of a red flag. You know, that shouldn't be happening, but sometimes they don't know any better. Right. Yeah. Makes so, sense. yeah. Um, but to add on the point of like a taping technique. So like an example would be sometimes too, we use the McConnell taping. So you have limited dorsiflexion. We do that uh, posterior glide with the medial arch support to facilitate and help tape that ankle to produce that mobility. But it's not let's just tape and let you go. It's we tape it, we hammer out mobility, and then once you're doing those mobility drills and you're trying to get that end range dorsiflexion, your body has to learn how to control that. So range of motion without motor control is pointless. Kelly Starr will tell you that. Gray Cook will tell you that. So that's why static stretching to me is stupid, and it took me a while to realize that doing all these hamstring stretches and stuff. And I say, okay, but can your body take it there? What's the point of having that range of motion? It's like empty motion. So you need to have your body be able to bring it there. So that's why mobility is important. So we do the ankle mobility. Then we do drills to facilitate the foot to be in that position. So we facilitate with like half kneel positions, lunging, split stance, deep squat. You know, once all that is there, that will help reinforce that. Because you could do towel stretches on your calf all you want. I mean, if you're an athlete, it's not going to help you because when you're playing, there's no towel pulling your, your foot back. It's I have to learn how to control with my ankle at the closed chain dorsiflexion degrees here. And you'll see that where some of these athletes that Joe has sent, I can push their ankle back, which is really good off the table. But then when we go and load them, you see a big difference. And I have one right now that has a 10 degree difference. One, it moves and they go over the other one like, yeah, that hurts. It's painful. It feels stiff. But on the table, it looked really good. The joint acts differently when it's loaded and the muscles have to contract and stabilize. There's something right. going on there. So you got to start looking at those two positions as well. Gotcha. See this, man, I just sit here and just got so much knowledge. This is so much fun. Let them know. <laughs> this is, dude, this is good shit. I Bro, mean, there was really- another topic you were talking about. Um, uh, you were saying about the hamstring uh, prevention programming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one um, w- one thing I've I, I've uh, had the uh, fortune of being exposed to a lot, um, especially during the the quarantine these last couple of months, is uh, just a generalized increase in terms of you know amount of information you can consume online. And you know one of the ways that that's kind of come about is just through the the use of webinars. I'm sure both of you can attest. You've probably seen some stuff on LinkedIn or other social media platforms where people are putting out. Um, what would otherwise normally cost money or, you know, be conferences you'd have to attend in person, they're starting to become more widely available. Um, 
And a couple weeks ago, uh, I, w- I was actually able to, uh, you know, listen in on a sports map network uh, uh, webinar. Uh, and, and it was primarily discussing lower extremity soft tissue injuries and in the, in the panel that they had of people uh, on this um, webinar were just, just absolutely incredible. And one of my, uh, one, of, one of my favorite um, presentations was given by a person named James Moore. Mike, I don't know if you're familiar with him at all, but he's a pretty influential, uh, I, I guess, um, clinician in terms of his work with athletes. And uh, one thing, he, he spoke particularly on a couple of case studies when it comes to hamstring injuries. And, you know, as he went through doing that, you know, broke down anatomy, physiology, function, what it might be. Um, And one thing in particular I thought was really interesting and it's something that I hadn't considered was how the adductor magnus actually should be considered uh, the fifth influential muscle, um, especially when considering the the proximal um, MTJ or muscular tendon junction of the hamstring itself. It's, like I said, something that if, if you kind of, you know, think about in terms of its anatomical orientation, it inserts at that area. And um, it's one of the most influential hip extensors in a period of hip flexion, which, like I said, like if you go and you, you know, think about just the function of the muscle itself, it would make sense. But again, I, just something that I had never really considered personally. Um, and if you, you know, given the fact that that, you know, proximal segment is what's most often injured, especially in, you know, high speed running injuries at the hamstring. Um, you can probably venture to guess that it could be related to a lack of eccentric strength at times, right? I'm sure, you know, some of us are familiar with the fact that a lot of times those that are, you know, that injure their hamstrings or have frequent hamstring injuries could be due to a lack of eccentric control during those periods of the late swing phase, especially when you're running at high speeds. But it could also be due to inefficiency of synergy or contribution to muscles um, that actually support the hamstrings. And that was, again, his idea that was presented, I thought was an absolutely great idea. Um, and given that they work to help to create some of those hip extensor moments at high speeds, it just was, I thought was a really good take home point. That's just to illustrate. It's something at least for me to consider if you're working with an athlete that could either be frequently re-injuring their hamstrings or could be, I guess, at risk to, re- to injure their hamstrings, which is a segue to something else that I was meaning to bring up too. I guess we can get to in a sec, but, um, for, the, for those that are more at risk, if you're creating an athlete profile, right, it would make sense to also monitor adductor strength. And that's, I think that's something that sometimes, uh, from my understanding of his presentation, wasn't always considered. thought it was a really good point and relatively, I don't want to say easy to program for, but it's something that we can consider in terms of friendly conditioning professionals, uh, post-rehab specialists, rehabilitative specialists, whatever, might, whatever our title might be. For those of us working with athletes, I think it, it, it does you know, carry merit to actually consider. Um, and I thought that was a really good point. Again, I'm just curious your opinion on it, too. So what you're going to start to see too with this is uh, I think even coming out of school, being like a new PT, we tend to get fixated on single muscle group stuff. It's like when the whole VMO craze and there's still therapists that still do straight leg raises with a little bit of external rotation in the leg. They're just, it's mind blowing, but that's what they do. So great. You want to have them do leg raises, knock yourself out. You know, I mean, this is where it's going to come down to our profession progressing because, um, you know, especially during this whole uh, COVID time, you're going to see other professions starting to really bump themselves up. They're going to promote themselves through videos, through virtual stuff. I mean, everyone's going to do it. So you have more access to the information. So people are going to start looking here. There's going to be any trainer on Instagram to put up videos and stuff like that. And people say, oh, I saw this, I saw that, you know. So you're going to see all these ideas. And the thing is, is like, 
there's a million exercises out there. There's so many ways to do stuff. So as a PT, it could be really overwhelming or even in Joe's case, the training, you see all this cool stuff and you want to do it and you see like really like high level, low level, like what do you do? And it's like when you start to see the individual and the deficits, you're going to start to learn like what to do with them. And then you'll come up with your own ideas. And it's like, you could do whatever you want. That's a great thing with like functional movement systems. Great Cook and those guys give ideas of correctives. But if you understand the concept of what you're trying to do, you could be as creative as possible. So right. people used to think FMS was just like an exercise party. And I used to laugh and say, no. I was like, you know, you could do all the manual you want. Manual is very important as PTs. But if you do adjustments, you do soft tissue work, and that person comes off the table and they're loading themselves like a jerk, it's going to go right back again. So you have to make sure that the exercises are complementing the manual stuff that you're doing. Right. You know, so it has to be both. Or you can't just skip manual and just do exercise. If someone's trying to exercise through joint mobility restriction or soft tissue, they're not going to get anywhere. You know, so you look at an adductor muscle, for example. So if you're someone competing and you're like a bodybuilder, you're going to sit there and do all these squeezes, all these crazy stuff. I mean, they hit everything at a million different angles. They're in the gym for two hours. Their performance is physique. If you're looking at performance as an athlete, you're going to start noticing that these muscles don't need to be completely isolated. They need to learn to work together. You know, there's a difference between doing long arc quad versus like closed kinetic chain loading. This athlete is performing in positions. When are they ever sitting straightening their leg? That has its, its place, like especially if it's like post-op with this really, really like deficient like quad asymmetry, you know, like I know – Kevin Wilk will do a lot of that. He'll do some isolated stuff to get it to catch up. But he's always implementing that, like, perturbation and closed kinetic chain. I mean, if you look at his, like, Instagram, you'll see he does a lot of single leg perturbation bands and all this stuff to really get the body to react to all these external stimuli because that's what's going on. When Joe gets a chance to work with, like, some of the athletes at a little more high level, and he does things where they're going to get a ball, and he bounces them with a, with a Swiss ball. What happens if a player twice your size come and hits you? These girls and these guys have to be able to stabilize their core, brace, and land, and all that. So you're going to look at these corrective exercises they are going to start doing that will engage that adductor with other, other movements. So you start doing things where if you're doing a lateral movement, you have to realize that the leg – so if I'm going lateral lunge to my right, let's look at where that left leg is stabilizing because if you have it in the right stability position – the adductor, the hamstrings, the glutes, and the pelvis are stabilizing that leg so they're all working together, translating. Same thing when you're doing any type of, uh, like, lunge position. Look at what the stance leg is doing and transferring the patterns. Everything's working together. Instead of just sitting and doing, like, you know, ball squeezes and stuff like that, you're starting to get the muscles to work synergistically to get a better movement pattern. And then before you know it, everything works together, and then you start seeing that. But you're right. You could see – like adductor strains and stuff because maybe there is deficiency and something is compensating somewhere. But when you train everything to work together, all of a sudden you'll see those things start dissipating now. Did you see the uh, – I sent you a video right before we got on. It, I, I said to you, I'm not really sure if I just made this, video, this exercise up, but it was something that Ryan and I had talked about this question, which prompted the whole podcast in the first place. <clears throat> It shows the athlete, right? You can see – are you watching it now? Yeah. Do you see that? Yeah. Now, That's definitely a good creative idea. It's almost kind of like a little bit of a modified, almost like a, a bear crawl position, mountain climber position, um, getting to stimulate that, that uh, adductor. And then you're doing 
an abduction movement, so he's learning to stabilize. Now, if he learns to feel for that proprioception in the hip and core, now you can translate that to more aggressive bear crawl, lateral bear, bear crawls, or then get him to do more lateral movements and standing. But sometimes you need, yeah, you need to do a couple of these basic things so the person learns awareness of their body, and then can they take that same feeling and translate that? Just like with the girl we were talking about earlier, Ryan, he had a girl he was had doing lateral lunges, and when she would go to lunge, she would hyperextend her back. So okay. anterior pelvic tilt, when she's going to go into the squat, a lot of it uh, lumbar lordosis there. So she's not really engaging her core and getting those glutes. So we got her sometimes might have to back, and we could do like a, a wall sit, lean up against the wall, suck your belly in and do a pelvic engagement there to learn to get out of that anterior pelvic tilt, feel for what that feels like, yeah. then let's take that same feeling and try to translate that into a lateral lunge. Or you might have to manually cue her when she goes to lunge, put your hands on her pelvis and cue her in position. I got to deal with patients all the time. You know, they walk around, especially the worst are gymnasts. Gymnasts, duck butt central because of all the back hooks and hamstrings. It's, it's really – yeah, it's bad. then you get the, um, you know, spondylolisthesis, all that stuff. That's usually something that you got to look at in the young girls when they're doing gymnastics real early, being aware of that. Because, I mean, that's, that's part of where you're going to see some sacrifice in, in mobility, stability type uh, changes. Eric Cressy talks about that. Baseball players, they're going to have an abnormal arm. That's just part of the sport, you know. Right. Quarterbacks, same thing with gymnasts. You want to be a gymnast, you're going to have hypermobility in certain areas, but are you stable? Can you stabilize that position? Or are we just crashing down on, on lumbar segments when we're doing movements? Or are we moving into a very excessive lumbar component, but we're having the muscles stabilize there? Great example is high, high level Olympic gymnast doing an iron cross and he's got his legs straight out, not really using his core, he's using his hip flexors and his back extensors to hold that position. Looks good, but it's really not. So now when you break it down, you look at that, you got to retrain that motor control pattern. Otherwise, it's going to blow his back out or get like a hernia or something, you know. So and sometimes I, things look good, but they're not. Right. And I, and I came up with that. Basically, we were talking about, you know, trying to isolate the adductor a little bit. And we talked about Copenhagen's. And I didn't want to do a straight leg there because, A, the leg that was bent in that video, that's the operative knee on the ACL. And he had a hamstring graft, and he was the one I talked to you about yesterday. So I didn't want to put the knee in that type of extension there and uh, in, in unsupported. So I went with – so that's where I kind of got creative with the idea there. But so that makes sense then. That could be kind of like a precursor to, like you said, a lateral bear crawl or even a bear crawl in itself. Yeah, I mean, then also the proximal hamstring stuff is really good. So if you have them lie on their back and they have their feet in like a TRX cable and they're doing the extensions out, but the biggest thing is to make sure they're not hyperextending their back, maintaining, excuse me, a neutral pelvis, making sure they have that as they straighten the legs and as they pull back in and they're not, you know, uh, anterior uh, uh, tilting that pelvis. So making sure they're doing it right or same thing you do with a Swiss ball or the sliders, the furniture yeah. sliders. Yep. Um, another good one is um, Chris Knott, who is a, a personal trainer for a lot of the NFL guys, talks about the um, basically the, uh, the glute hand drop where, you know, you're kneeling and you slowly drop yourself down. But what he does is he has them kneeling and they, they anchor their feet under a bar. Someone holds it. Then they have one of those uh, pull-up assist bands tied to the pull-up bar above and they hold it behind their head. 
and they slowly lower themselves down. So the band, it's like an assisted pull-up. Right. They can lower down. They're maintaining the pelvic position, go down as far as they can, and then they got to pull themselves back up. So a lot of the players can do just the eccentric part, but they can't contract and pull themselves back up. So that's like an assisted kind of pull-up. Using the band to do the movement, same thing. Learning to engage that proximal hamstring is making you aware of your core and your pelvis. And that proximal work is really important for stabilizing the pelvis. Everyone wants to do hamstring curls and getting a lot in the distal hamstring, but it's the proximal that you see a problem. And proximal hamstring tendinopathy, literally a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. When you're an athlete with that, you got to get in there and you got to dig at that ischial tube. And it is not, I mean, you got people's legs up and you're digging in there and you're trying to break things down. It's not great. Guys and girls, you're literally digging in their ass. It's not great. So the point case, don't get proximal hamstring tendinopathy. I won't say his name, but I know one of my buddies does listen. Uh, he called me the other day. He's like, dude, I think I pulled my hamstring playing softball. He's like, it's right up underneath my ass cheek. I'm like, yeah, that's typically where that's going to happen, playing softball. You haven't done anything yep. in forever. And then it gets better. I talked to him yesterday to see how he was doing. He said, oh, I went for a light run this morning. Nice. nice. I said, well, that, that ought to warm it right up. Either that or yeah. snap it, one or the other. Yeah, seriously. So, um, go ahead, Ron. One, one point I, I did want to make, and I, and I thought that the points that you're making, Mike, about, um, like, synergistic patterns, you know, is important to consider a whole unit of muscles working together in terms of their influence. I, I think that's true, and especially with this, I just – I think that it's, it's, it's a part of that unit itself from at least from my understanding of it, that's not often considered, but still, I guess, functionally does impact, especially at periods of, um, you know, higher, you know, more maximal velocity sprinting does offer influence in terms of its, uh, you know, ability to aid in hip extension. And so if you're going to, you know, introduce this, uh, you know, athletes, you know, to this form of running with an inherently weaker, subdivision of that group itself i do think that that could actually help to create an influence in terms of uh you know a, a risk of injury right that's that could be modifiable and it's something that often isn't considered as much even though functionally it does act to aid periods of um you know hip extension while we're running and he a part of what he did mention was um just to consider these synergistic patterns as we you know try to load these athletes right and that that doesn't just you know fall suit to the you know adductor magnus itself that includes you know periodic loading of the hip flexors the abdominals and the adductors in positions that would help to influence uh you know positions that would be running in so you know one of them that I, I had talked to joe about earlier was was doing like a modified copenhagen where you're essentially doing like an iso hold while also working on core stability and trunk rotation in a period where you're not exactly doing a copenhagen but it's something that looks similar to it and you're getting an isometric contraction, which would be strengthening your adductor itself. Um, that would that shouldn't be the be all end all that you would consider as you go to program for an athlete, but it could be a section of their athletic profile that if they have values that would decrease, might say, okay, they might still be lacking in terms of their ability to dissipate force in periods of hip extension. That would actually be an area to consider as a subset, in addition to your typical eccentric programming for your hamstrings, right? So I, I think that what would offer I guess merit would be including this as a, as a group to try and consider training because it can't help and it could just increase resiliency, especially during those periods of, of uh, you know, knee extension where you're increasing your eccentric, you know, force on your hamstrings as you run. Um, and, you know, that on top of introducing to an increased amount of load in terms of the velocity you'd be running at 
you know, in that introduction to help people to get used to that kind of position, do that on top of training, you know, training the hamstrings, the entire posterior chain for that matter, in addition to their core, their hip flexors and their adductors. I just thought it, you know, the point itself as, as, as an additional muscle that, it, that from what it may seem might not often as, you know, be considered. And, and I, and I can recognize that given my position, I, you know, I, I still wouldn't hold too much of, you know, myself accountable given the fact that I haven't treated it too often. But like I said, it just seems like an interesting, you know, just, just an add on that isn't often considered as much. And I, and I think that if you were to still try and work, understanding that this unit is, is all, you know, an influencer of one another, it definitely would be something that I think would be worth considering um, at times. So I thought it was pretty interesting. Mike, would you ever do that or use that uh, in early stage ACL rehab using some of the um, isolated adductor mangus type stuff that, uh, that Ryan's talking about, exercises? Um, I don't, I mean, I do some of that, like I'll do some of the, um, like squeezes and engagement just for the, uh, pelvic stability with bridging, um, especially also for like core engagement. So I have them get in a plank position or even a side plank position. They got to squeeze a ball between there because that helps to stabilize the pelvis. It also helps them the cue to squeeze their glutes together to get that to stabilize the pelvis. People tend to forget that the glute max is the biggest, you know, muscle in the human body. And, you know, humans are the only mammal that has the biggest glute max because we're the only mammal that is bipedal. So that's for a reason. Other mammals are on four legs and other mammals might be able to run faster than we can for short periods, but they can't outrun us. That's where that whole primitive pattern comes from is humans can un 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 uh, un uh, basically outrun their food. So if you had to track something down, that's why we can run for 26 miles. There's no animal that runs that like wolves will migrate for miles but they're not running the whole time so that glute max is important and sometimes it's just not engaged and you know uh brett Contreras will talk about this really well the glute guy says some you know some people especially women genetically have nice butts but they're not muscular <laughs> and that's it's true right <laughs> he, he, he exposes it all the time and he's right he's right you get, you get these girls that genetically have a nice butt and they go on and they do some bullshit exercises and everyone wants to follow them and they have a great following and it's like the exercises they're doing are trash and he exposes that all the time yeah. so you got to look at like the purity of it so we got to remember that it's about the efficiency of the exercise so Good point. Yeah, to answer the question, I'll do some of those uh, exercises um, because, again, you're, you're using that. And, like, I kind of follow that FMS system where we start with an unloaded position. The less loaded, the less um, external stimulus the body has to worry about. So you start supine, quadruped, then you progress to tall kneel, half kneel, going from there, and then you start working. So same thing, we do payoff presses. I have them squeeze a ball so they can learn on engaging – tucking the pelvis down, stabilizing that whole co-contraction as they press out so they get aware of what that looks like. And the goal is to get them off of the bands and the ball and to be able to do that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah I think I'll implement some of that adductor stuff. Uh, you know, but I don't have them do, like, you know, seated in a chair, ball squeezes and stuff. I yeah. think I do that a little bit more for uh, geriatric because for them, I'm just yeah, trying exactly. to get them to move, you know, trying to get them something. And they're exhausted after 10, so and they got to go to the bathroom. So. Yeah, yeah. I think I think just integrating like these these positions that are more I, I guess like sports specific or functionally relevant uh, is something that might I shouldn't say might it absolutely is something to consider. It's important, and I I just think that's a good point to be honest with you. So, 
Dude, so I'm here. Oh, my bad, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you sure? Yeah. Um, I was uh, kind of a segue. I was going to ask what both of your opinions are on the idea of injury prevention as a term. So injury prevention. So you know, you'll hear that from anybody in right. uh, rehab profession. Uh, you know, we use that kind of loosely, but you can't really prevent an injury. It's more about reduction of um, almost, I guess, uh, uh, severity and risk, you know. So the more – so basically take an athlete that's really stable. They land really bad on one leg. Instead of an ACL tear, they get maybe a little MCL sprain, you know maybe a little bit of soft tissue strain because the muscles took the blow, not the joint. So that's the difference between that could have been an ACL, but it's not, or someone really stable on an ankle. I mean, I can tell you right now, I'll be running, I'll roll my ankle, and it snaps right back. That's just from training. I even did that in high school. I've actually seen that with even non-athletic people. I remember one woman specifically, really bad um, ankle instability. She was probably in her 40s. She would just go walk into the mall, the ankle would just roll on her. <laughs> we worked on her for like, yeah, uh, like eight weeks probably wow. doing the stuff. She was religious with the stuff. Then she would say she literally walked, the ankle would go like this and would snap right back because she has the motor control. So could have been a bad injury, but now it's minor. So the kid that landed and took a soft tissue strain, your muscles are meant to take that blow, versus a kid who lands and just completely destroys his knee. You know, but then that's barring non-contact. If someone slide tackles you and breaks your ankle, like something that happened to me when I was in high school, Yep. It is what it is. It's right. It is. Right. Exactly. You take a helmet to the knee. I mean, when I see those linemen rolling around in a bad pileup in like an NFL game, I'm like, oh my God, these guys are falling all over the place. I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I actually think, I think that's a really good, um, a really good way to put it. And I, I was speaking with a close friend recently and he offered that like the, the term injury prevention itself is a bit of a flare term, right? Because as a technicality, you can't ever actually prevent injury. As you were saying, like, random things might happen that you just you can't plan for so a better way to term it might actually be to call it like injury resilience or injury mitigation because like like i said you can't actually prevent the injury itself but if you followed it with the same frame of mind of you can you know train people much in the same way as you would create a strength and conditioning prevention or program to, to make them more resilient to tolerate increases in load it will be the same thing with designing a program to make these athletes more resilient to when these faulty patterns or these unfortunate consequences of the movements that they're performing happen, being better respond to it to decrease the severity or to decrease the percent chance that they might have of actually experiencing these injuries. And I thought that was a really, really good way to put it. Yeah. Um, because I think, I think uh, for, again, and this is where I, you know, catch myself, at least from my understanding sometimes, and, I, and I'd be guilty of it, is that you get too caught up in trying to, you know, compare A to equal to B and take this, like, linear approach almost that because th there might be one risk factor that you could target to assume that that will always create some sort of, you know, you know faulty injury or, a, you know, an unfortunate consequence. And so you'd want to train that without understanding that, th that these, you know, systems have a tendency to – kind of interact with one another more so than just to, to approach something from a, I guess, a tunnel vision viewpoint, if that makes sense. Um, well, I'd say first thing is I'm always trying to prevent injuries from happening. Right. But yep. 
I, I mean, that's goal number one in the training program is to make sure that you're not hurting them, right? Yep. But again, I have an ACL injury reduction program. Exactly. That yep. To people, right? And what I tell them is, I don't guarantee that it's going to stop the ACL from tearing. But what I can guarantee is that if you don't do this, you're at a higher risk of tearing it. Perfect way to word it. Exactly. So, perfect, um, perfect way to word what it. What I would say is, um, you know, Kelly Stark talks about this too. Um, you know, Kelly Stark is a great example, I think, in that Supple Leopard book. You know, everybody loves to flip through the exercises and all the cool stuff, but the beginning chapter is probably the most important. He talks about the background of understanding basically how the human body works and all that type of stuff. So he talks about open loop and closed loop systems. So, right. you know, an open loop, you have a position where there's almost kind of, you know, there's a hole and you're skipping over it. And athletes, the more talented the athlete, the higher the compensation because they could just kind of skip the through point. stuff. You yep. know, they're, they have speed, they have size, you know, they have power. They're genetically built to do that. So they'll skip over certain things. And that's where the injuries will happen. So what happens is if you're training and you're compensating in your training just to get it done, that's where you're going to pose a high risk for, uh, of injury because you're training these faulty patterns. You know, so if you are training and you're focusing more on the quality of the training instead of just the numbers or the time and all that, then you could get away with compensation because that's always going to happen in competition. Right. You're always yep. going to compensate a little bit but if you've trained right nine out of ten of the times and that ten out of ten you'll get away with doing something a little weird you know yep but, good point and right. you can hear this too from um uh you know any strength conditioning coaches even in the nfl you know they talk about that um they'll tell you that guys like to talk about oh well, we got 10 guys who could power clean x amount of weight well that's great no one gives a shit when you're two and ten so what's happening is these guys are compensating to get that weight. So they're not actually training the muscles under that duress. So when it comes time to translating that onto the field, they're not hitting that point. So then the injury happens or they break down because when it came time to actually train those muscles, they're not doing it because they're compensating. So they're not getting that specificity in. So it's, is that training, again, speaking the language of your sport? Is it translating over? You know, which also ties into another good point is a part of the injury thing is there are other factors that contribute to it. Greg Cook talks about that also is you have the mobility, you have the stability, you have the fundamental capacity, everything's in place. What about other factors? Central nervous system stress. You're overtraining. You know, you're, you're pounding yourself down and you want to go and you want to compete and your body is just not having it. It's not there. You know, uh, stress. You know, other things that are going on in the lifestyle that can affect that. And that's really big, especially with the high school sports, because, you know, even yeah. though these kids can, you know, we talk about as you get a little bit older, sometimes you can't handle as much volume and things like that. Sometimes the younger kids, like a 20 year old could go and do like five workouts a day. But what I think I've heard them starting to talk about in terms of other like trainers and even research is that some of uh, that carryover is in specific. So you're doing five workouts a day, but how much is that really carrying over? And when you're kind of younger, that carryover is a little bit minimal. So it's more about the quality of the workout. Let's do maybe one or two quality workouts, absorb that instead of just doing everything because you have the energy to do it. Just like when you get into your 30s and 40s, you don't have time to do five workouts a day. So it's, it's really yeah. kind of a quality workout. I do. Getting stuff from that workout. There we go. You know? What? 
I said, I do. I have plenty of time to get in five workouts a day. <laughs> pool sprints. We're into <laughs> Hey, listen, I'm no more going to the pool, clearly, right? Well, ladies, I've, listen, Mike, I've been diligent. I've been getting in my workouts. Ryan saw me this morning. He was in there this morning. I got my workout. I had to cut them off because I didn't want to talk to him anymore. I said, we'll save it for the podcast. I got to get my workout in. Um, but I'm looking at the time. I don't mean to cut Ryan off, but I'm, this way we can get him back on with some other questions down the road. Oh, so there we go. I'll I save the one I was asked next. I still got to speed home and eat. And then we got a late night podcast with our boy from the uh, the West Coast, Mr. Smooth, with his uh, with his headphones and his microphone and everything. Like so I sit boy. there and I watch him. <laughs> I, I just I just feel like I'm at home, just watching him, just do his thing, and he's talking. He's got the smooth California voice. Yeah, he's a good dude. But before we get off, I always like to make sure that people know where to find you. So Ryan, where can we find you? Sure. Um, right now, my two primary areas I'd say to look me up on would be one, Twitter. I gave a little shameless plug um, to my Twitter earlier today. It's uh, at PT underscore tags. Uh, my second one would be if anyone has LinkedIn. I, I'm pretty big. No, I shouldn't say I'm pretty big. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, it's just my name, Ryan Tagliamonte, SPT. Um, at, those would be the two main ones. Other than that, um, I mean, that's probably where you'd find me on social media at the moment. I told you today I'm working on trying to get an actual professional yeah, Instagram page, going through some exercises and things that I think that are pretty relevant and, and worth mentioning that, you know, mm -hmm. people could do. That'll come in time, but for the moment, those two will probably be the best. Bingo. Michael, where can they find you? Uh, most active on Instagram, good at Icor underscore St. George. So you could see all the uh, fabulous OCR workouts, some comedy, and then you get some PT related stuff. It's a mix of everything. Try yes. to keep it entertaining. Yes, it is. Uh, his stories are quite entertaining. Uh, quite entertaining, yes. They don't put those filters on there for no reason, man. People need to start having some fun. Stop being so serious. Got follow my man, Icor underscore St. George, definitely. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, YouTube. I'm all over the place right now. Social um, media menace. I'm trying to get hot on one of them. So, but you can find <laughs> me mainly on Instagram at coach underscore Haas, H-O-S. Um, Guys, I appreciate it. Michael, I'll see you in a little bit. Ryan, I'll probably see you either tomorrow or next week. Sir. All right, buddy. Thanks for being I on. appreciate it a lot, guys. I, I really enjoyed myself today. So thanks for having me on. Appreciate Definitely. it. I'm always learning with you guys. So thank you. All right. Take care, guys. All right, guys. Michael, I'll see you soon. All right.